So I wanted to take today and uh, present what I'm calling a congregational New Year's resolution. And uh, the resolution is simply that we would, together, uh, learn to think and feel and act upon God's word the way the psalmist thought and felt and acted upon God's word. Now, I don't know what you think about New Year's resolutions. Um, I, I know they often get a bad rep, and especially among Christians, they can be unhelpful, they can be legalistic, but I always find it helpful come around the new year to reflect upon the year past and to think about the year ahead and to ask myself, okay, what are the things I want to focus on in the year to come? Uh, how can I be a better husband, a better father, a better pastor, more faithful in these ways? How can I get more organized? What are the things that I need to say no to? I'm not very good at saying no. And, and what are the things that I must say yes to? Well, the thing that I want us all to say yes to in the year 2020 is more time in God's word. I, I want us to read and study the Bible more in 2020. I know there's lots of ways we could go off track here as we start to talk about this. We could, we could come at this with finger, uh, finger wagging and you need to do better. Um, you must not be a very serious Christian unless you're spending regular time in the world. But none of, uh, word, no, but none of that's really helpful. Nevertheless, I think it is a challenge worth considering. You know, to, to show, me, show me a growing Christian someone who's thriving in the Christian life, growing, maturing in Christ Jesus, who is not spending regular time publicly and privately in the Word of God. You won't find it. So our text today is Psalm 119, the whole thing. It's the longest chapter in the book of Psalms. Actually, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's a song of praise for God's word. It will be helpful for you to have it open in front of you. I'm not going to read any more right now, but you'll want to have it in front of you because we're going to be looking at several verses uh, during our time together in Psalm 119. Now, Paul has already mentioned it's acrostic, follows the Hebrew alphabet. So each stanza begins with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But another thing you'll notice in Psalm 119 is that the variety of words used to describe God's word. Words like law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, promises, word. Each of them has a different shade of meaning, but they all share this one common idea. Uh, this is God's verbal revelation to his people written down, inscripturated, if you will, as holy men of old, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Another thing to notice, and this will be a theme for today, is that Psalm 119 is a love poem. That's what it is. Psalm 119 is a love poem. Have you ever thought about that, that the longest chapter in the Bible is a love poem about God's word? Maybe some of you in the past have taken a crack at uh, uh, love poems. Although Kelsey's not here, she'll, she'll be happy to know when I get home that I didn't try to dig up uh, any of my attempts in order to share them with you. I don't think she'd ever come back if I did that. 
Um, but ho hopefully, hopefully those have all vanished and disappeared into the abyss somewhere in our house. But I did have some fun this week, and maybe you'll do it later this week. You can have a lot of fun Googling love poems on, uh, online. Uh, now, some good ones come up, of course. You can read Shakespeare. But here's one of my favorites that I came across. I, I'm willing to bet that this was a junior hire. It says, uh, Girl, you make me brush my teeth, uh, comb my hair, use deodorant, call you. You're so swell. <laughs> That's really, really something, isn't it? I'll give you another one. Why not? I have a few here that I'll skip, skip over, but uh, I think this is the same person. Look, there's a lonely cow. Hey, cow. If I were a cow, that would be me. If love is the ocean, I'm the Titanic. Titanic. Baby, I burn my hand on the frying pan of our love, but still it feels better than the bubble gum that holds us together, which you stepped on. All right, so, so many metaphors there. I don't even know what that's about, but... All right, if you've, if you've tried your hand at love poems, uh, maybe, maybe you look back on them with a little bit of embarrassment. Not just because of it being poor poetry, but maybe you read it and you think, wow, I was really, really passionate. I was really enthusiastic. And maybe you feel that little bit of embarrassment and awkwardness, especially if things have grown cold and you look back and you think, how, how did I ever feel that way? Well, if you read Psalm 119 as a love poem, I wonder if you're honest with yourself, do you feel a little bit of that kind of embarrassment? Look, for example, at verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, honestly, when you read those words, do you think, wow, psalmist is really laying it on thick here. <laughs> He's really engaging in some poetic license overstating the fact. That, that may be our gut reaction when we read Psalm 119. Maybe you think, does anybody really feel that strongly about God's word? So maybe you're here today and you're, you're tired and discouraged. Maybe you're feeling spiritually cold. Maybe reading the Bible is hard for you. It's just hard, toilsome work for you. Or maybe you question whether the Bible is right all of the time. Maybe it contains mistakes. Or maybe you just think, you know what? It, it's kind of boring. It's really confusing. Why in the world do I want to wake up and read about animals being sacrificed in the tabernacle? It just seems so irrelevant to my modern life. So I just don't see what the psalmist is so excited about. Well, here's our goal for today. Here's, here's my aim. For this love poem to be the song of your heart and my heart. For us to think and feel and act upon the word of God the way that the psalmist thought and, acted, thought and felt and acted upon the word of God. Those are the three things that I want us to, to think about this morning. Um, 
how the psalmist thought about God's word, what he believed about God's word. Secondly, what the psalmist felt about God's word. And and thirdly, as a result of what he believed and felt, what he did with God's word, how he acted upon it. Those are the three things I want us to think about. So let's start with the first, what the psalmist believes about God's word. And as we do this, please be asking yourself, is this what I believe about God's word? Let's take our starting point here. The psalmist believes God's word is true. Verse 42, I trust in your word. Verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true. And verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. So the psalmist was utterly convinced that God's word is trustworthy and true. It's also true, isn't it, that we live in an age of skepticism. We, we live in, a, in an, a time of deep suspicion and, and mistrust. Nobody trusts anybody. Nobody knows who to believe anymore. Who can we really trust? If you're a student and you're in class listening to your teacher or your professor and you're thinking, can I really, can I really trust what this prof is saying? Or you listen to a politician and your immediate assumption is there's no way I can believe a word coming out of their mouth. It's all just a political agenda. They're putting a political spin on it. It's about partisan politics. They, they don't really care about truth so long as they get what they want. And now I know that's not true of every politician, but it is the general sentiment today, I think, among many people. Then there's the news media and reporters commenting on the politicians, and it's just spin on top of spin. Nobody is fair and balanced. And then... We've got the fact checkers who are supposed to set things right. But now we know we can't even trust the fact checkers. So we've got fact checkers on the fact checkers. And uh, and how about the internet? (laughs) You you can trust anything you read on the internet, right? Um, Saw a quote from John Calvin. You can't trust everything you read on the internet. And you can fact check me on that one later. Just checking to see how many of you are awake. Some of you are smiling. Some of you get it. John Calvin lived in the 16th century. There was no internet. But, okay, it's a given we live in an age of skepticism. And nobody knows who to trust or what to believe. But you see, in the midst of all of that confusion, here's the psalmist saying, the word of God is trustworthy. The word of God is true. Verse 89, it is firmly fixed in the heavens. That means it doesn't change. Verse 96, there is no limit to its perfection. Uh, Verse 160 says, God's word endures forever. The word of God never wears out and its truth never goes out of date. It's never irrelevant. It's never bound to a single people, place, or culture. So if you think, man, I'm just so confused. Nobody seems reliable. Everybody seems to have an agenda, but I long for truth. I long to know what's true. I long to know what's true about me and about the world around me, about the past and the future. I long to know what's true about God, and I long to know what's true about the good life. And then the psalmist is saying, here you have everything you need in the word of God. And to back that up, Jesus believed this too. Remember what he prayed for his disciples 
Sanctify them in your truth for your word is truth. And so the psalmist believed everything in this book is trustworthy and true. And going another step here, he believed that what God says and demands is right. See that in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. Verse 128, I consider all your precepts to be right. Verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. But I wonder, if you, have you ever found yourself reading a part of God's word and saying to yourself, well, I'm a Christian, and this is the Bible. I don't like this, but I guess I'll believe it. I guess I'll, I guess I'll confess it. I guess I'll follow it, but I really, really don't like it. I think there are maybe two ways to explain that response to God's word. On the one hand, there could be something noble about it. You know, you're, you're trying to put to death the beliefs and the practices of your old life. You're saying, I'm, I'm going to believe this. I'm going to follow this, even if something in me doesn't like it. I, really, I, I, I don't really like what the Bible has to say about Sin. I don't really like what the Bible has to say about hell. I don't like what the Bible has to say about sexuality or the doctrine of election. But there it is. Jesus taught it, so I'm going to embrace it. Something noteworthy in that, but there's also something troubling about it. There's something wrong with that. Because when you read Psalm 119, you, you never get the sense that the psalmist is sort of folding his arms and going, hmm. I really don't like what God's word says, but I'm going to embrace it anyway. That doctrine, that command, that teaching, I'm just going to grit my teeth and confess it. That's not it at all. You see, the psalmist has come to the point where his, his heart is so in tune with the God of this word that he says over and over again of God's word, of God's promises, of God's precepts and rules, they're right, they're true, they're good. They're pure. He never sees God's commands as arbitrary or harsh. He doesn't think of God as, as just you know, issuing orders in the hopes that he might make your life miserable. He never, he never thinks God's words are unloving or unwise or, or unnecessary in any way. His commands are not cruel and unusual punishment. And so we, th we need to reflect on this. If we don't like the commands of God, it really says something about our heart toward God himself because the law of God is really a reflection of the character of the lawgiver himself. The law reflecting that he is always just, always pure, always right, always good. So go back to the very beginning of Psalm 119 with me for just a moment and take a look at how the psalm begins. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. In other words, it's saying, here is the way of true happiness. This is the way of life, happy, blessed are those 
who walk in the way of the Lord. This is not a word given to enslave you. This is a word given to set you free and to show you the way of true life. What it means to be truly human in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he goes on, and if you look at verse 6, for the man who keeps his way pure and walks in the way of the Lord, says, then I shall not be put to shame. You know, it is one of the tricks of the devil to make you feel misplaced shame. And it's happening increasingly now as our culture stands opposed more and more to, to Christianity. As you find yourself you know, out of step with the world and feeling ashamed, ashamed for believing what God's word says, ashamed for believing things that so many of your friends and your coworkers, maybe even your family, now label as bigotry or hate speech. But you see, that's exactly what Satan wants for people to feel ashamed for all of the wrong things and to no longer feel ashamed for those things which are truly shameful. And so the psalmist believes God's word is true. He believes God's word is right. And therefore, he believes God's word is a reliable source of counsel. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Now, we, we, you know that the Bible isn't a textbook given to teach you everything about everything. The Bible is not given to teach you how to remodel your home or change a tire on your car or perform a heart surgery or, or whatever. But do you believe God's testimonies are your counselors? That's the question. When you face trouble in your life, when there's a crisis, when you face a real problem, is your, is your gut reaction to say, to the law and to the testimony? To the word of my God. The psalm mentions a number of reasons why we should rely on God's counsel. Just let me list them off for you. Verse 28, the word of God provides strength. Verse 130, the word of God provides wisdom. Verse 105, it shows us where to go. Verse 105, you, you know this one very well. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, notice the imagery there is not of a blazing sun lighting up everything in your life so that you can see everything into the future, but rather the imagery of a, of a lamp in the midst of, a dark, of the darkness, giving you light for the next step. Maybe not revealing everything you might want to know, but everything you need to know for today. And so the psalmist is utterly convinced God's word is true, right, and therefore a reliable source of counsel so, so what about us? What about you? What do you believe about the word of God? See, in an age of doubt where the only truth is what's true for you, or, or maybe to be a little bit more precise, truth is whatever you feel today. However you feel about something, whatever you are feeling, that's what's true for you. And that situation in our culture today, the Bible clearly declares this truth is fixed in the heavens. This is what is right. Here is a reliable counsel to make your way in the world. 
You see, in this fallen world, there is no person, there is no institution, there is no book like this book. The Bible can be trusted in every way to speak what is true, to command what is right, and to show us the way of true life. And so I just want to ask us at the end of this year, do we, do we believe that? Do, do we really believe that? Beyond the level of verbal confession, it's our lives that will tell whether we truly believe that. Do we believe that God's word is true, that it, what it teaches is right, and that it is to be our counselor? That's the first thing. Secondly, what the psalmist feels about God's word. Not only what he believes, but what he feels about God's word. It's one thing to say, yes, I believe these things about God's word. But you see, the word does not just engage us at this level. The word of God does not just engage our minds. It's also meant to engage our affections. Head and heart are meant to work together. So look at verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Now, that's an incredible statement. Like, take all of the riches of the world and imagine <laughs> with them what you could delight yourself in. Right? The house you want where you want it. Actually, the houses you want where you want them. No more beater cars. The education you want for your kids. All of the vacations that's your heart desires. You know, whatever it is that you want to delight yourself in, you've got it. And the psalmist is saying, imagine all of that and you're getting close to how much I delight in God's word. Again, in verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. The same language is used in verse 47, 70, 143, and 174. Notice other emotive language used to describe God's word. In, in verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful. The word of God is sweet. It's the joy of his heart. It's full of wonder, he's saying. So if you're a Christian and maybe you've been listening up to this point and you're thinking, yeah, that all sounds that all sounds great, Jared. I wish it were my experience. Well, I just want to say to you today, don't, don't despair. It can be. It can be your experience. It can be your experience because of the grace of God at work in your life. So one of the things we need to understand when we read a psalm like Psalm 119 is that we shouldn't view it first of all in terms of being about us. But first of all, we need to begin recognizing these are the Psalms of Jesus. And that this Psalm is about him. The true man. The one who came and be became a man and lived as, a, as the second Adam, a sinless life. And he came into the world delighting to do the will of his heavenly father, Psalm 40. He, he loved God's word with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. It was his food to do the will of his heavenly father. And the will of his heavenly father, of course, was in obedience to 
the revealed word of God in scripture to lay down his life to rescue us and to save us and to make us his own. So you understand that as we're talking about this today, that underlying all of this is the foundation that from eternity past, it is the will of your father in heaven to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ in the whole man by the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I could, I could never feel this way about God's word, I just want to say to you, in and of yourself, you're absolutely right. But in light of the gospel, yes, you can. Because it is God's will to sanctify you in this way. But maybe, here's, here's something else I run into a lot as a pastor. Maybe somebody will say, look, Jared, I'm, I'm just not a reader. Uh, I've never been somebody who's enjoyed reading. Uh, you know, I dreaded it whenever I had classes. It's just never something I've done for fun. I'm just not one of those people. I'm never going to be someone who delights in God's word that way. I've heard that quite a bit, actually. And let me just... That's where you are. Let me challenge you gently there because I bet there are times in your life when you delight to hear someone or read something. I mean, don't, don't, you, don't you delight in reading or hearing something if you know that there is great benefit in it for you? You know, let's just say uh, you're with your family and got an executor, an executor of a will that's about to be read, and, and now the family's all gathered together, and this person stands up and says, okay, we're, we're here today to read from the will, and, and now we're going to hear about the apportionment, uh, apportionment of the inheritance. My guess is you're not going to walk out of there and say, you know what, I really don't like listening to people, so forget about it, just take whatever's given to me and give it out to somebody else. No, you, you would sit down and you would listen very carefully. And wouldn't you listen or read if you were in great danger and your life depended on it? Now, I know this is a hypothetical that would never happen, but just follow me here. Let's, let's say there's a bomb and someone says to you, you have to defuse it. Here are the instructions. Here's the instruction manual for doing it. You're not going to say, sorry, I'm not a reader. You know, you're, you're going to read the instructions carefully and follow them meticulously because you know that you're in great danger if you get it wrong. And, and don't we read things that are about us, about ourselves? You know, we, we, uh, maybe, maybe at work you have a boss who does a, an evaluation. My guess is you read that with great interest because you care about what somebody above you, above you thinks about you. And we're not always so centered on ourselves. We like to hear things and read about the people we love. Right? If one of your kids is away for college and they send you an email or perhaps even a handwritten letter, I don't know a parent who has said, sorry, Johnny, I don't read. So I threw it in the trash. I can't be bothered with No, no, you sit down and you hang on every word. You read it intently because you care about what's going on in their lives. And you do it because you love them. You delight to read about someone you love. So just think through what I just said. If we read something, if it has great benefit to us, if we don't read when we're in great danger, if it's, and if it's about us and about someone we love, well, just think about it. Isn't that the Bible? 
Isn't that the Bible? All of those things could be said about God's word. There's great benefit in hearing what God has to say. There's great danger if we don't give heed to what he has to say. It has a whole lot to say about us in order that we might truly know ourselves. And it's all about someone we love. If we are believers, it's all about Jesus. So you don't have to be a bookworm to delight in the word of God. The psalmist knew what he could find in scripture. And so he took delight in it. He knew whose word it was. And so he took delight in it. He says it over and over again throughout the psalm. I love it. I love it. I delight in it. And because of his love for the word and the God whose word it is. Turn, we, need to, we need to look at the flip side of this. Because of his love for God's word and the God whose word it is, the psalmist was deeply disturbed and upset when others did not take delight in that word. And so just a few examples here. Verse 53, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Verse 139, my zeal consumes me because foes forget your words. And verse 158, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Now that is not self-righteous judgmentalism speaking. It's not. Look, look, it's not, uh, you know, look, look, look at how awful and wicked those sinners are. Oh, thank God I'm not like that. There's none of that in this. Now, the language of disgust may seem harsh to us. But then I think it stings a little bit when we realize that's evidence not of how non-judgmental we are, but of how little we love God and his word. Look, I, I love Kelsey. Imperfectly, for sure. But I love her dearly. And if one of you were to come up to me and engage in conversation. And while I'm talking about my beloved, you said, look, I'm tired of hearing about Kelsey. I don't want you to talk about her anymore. Or if one of you spoke disparagingly of Kelsey, would you think it a mark of my open-mindedness if I said, hey, you know what? To each his opinion. <laughs> Have it your way. Or would you be more inclined to think of it as a sign of my love, love if I said, you know what? Your attitude about her stinks. And your disparaging comments about my wife disgust me. That's the psalmist when it comes to God's word. Because you see, extreme delight in someone or something naturally leads to extreme disgust when others consider that person or thing unworthy of delight. How do you not see the beauty that I see. So it's not that we're going around sticking our fingers in people's chest saying, I look on you with disgust. That's not what this is saying. But I hope you weep. I hope you have the sensitivity to shed tears or whatever the culturally appropriate expression of emotion may be to express righteous anger and heartbreak. Now, maybe here's another thing I run into, it seems, especially in Reformed churches. 
might try to get out of this and say, well, look, I'm, I'm just not an emotional person. I'm not an emotional guy. You know what I say to that? I say, really? Have you ever seen yourself watching a sports game? Have you ever seen yourself while your child is playing a game? You, you have emotions. Trouble is, our emotions are usually out of balance, out of whack, and we get excited about all the wrong things. I'm not saying it's wrong to get excited about your kids playing sports. You see, there's something admirable here about the psalmist, isn't there? When you see what's really going on, there's something profoundly Jesus-like here. As Jesus stood over the city of Jerusalem, what did he do? He convulsed with tears. Right? The language in the Greek is it's not that he just shed a couple of tears. Jesus was heaving. Tears were flowing. As he looked upon a city who had rejected God's words of grace. Same Jesus who went into the temple and turned over tables because his father's house of prayer had been turned into a den of thieves. And so the psalmist feels delight and he feels a desire to keep God's commands. That's the second thing I want us to think about here. He, he feels a desire to keep God's commands. At least six times there's an expression of longing to keep the commands of God. Verse 5, oh that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. And then at least 14 times, the psalmist expresses a desire to know and understand the word of God. You know, we humans are driven by desire. Isn't that the case? It's often our desires that, that drives and motivates our actions. It's why we get up in the morning. It's part of the reason why depression is so debilitating because depression gnaws away at our desires until we think that the day really has nothing to offer. But ordinarily, we have all sorts of desires. You have desires for relationships, for your family, for your kids, for their future, for your home, finances, whatever. And sometimes we have bad desires. Maybe we, wanna, we want recognition or for some reason we want revenge. And usually mixed within our hearts is a host of good and bad desires that are motivating us all the time. But you see, in the midst of that, the question that I want to ask you is, do you, do, you have, do you have this sincere desire to know and understand and to keep the commands of God? The psalmist so desired the word. Here, this is just amazing. He so desired to be conformed to the word that he considered suffering a blessing if it helped him to learn to obey. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Or verse 71, and for sure this is a hard thing to say, but he says it, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now, of course, this isn't telling you to go looking for affliction, nor is it in any way whatsoever minimizing your suffering. I wouldn't assume to know all the things God is doing in the midst of what you or your family is going through. 
But we can say this on the basis of scripture, that surely this is one thing God intends to do in your life, believer. When, when you suffer in the midst of affliction, he is teaching you obedience through what you suffer. And once again, we see a line straight to Jesus Christ, don't we? Because as God calls us to walk upon that path, we see that he is placing us upon a path that Jesus himself has already forged and has already walked down. As the man who was made perfect, the one who learned obedience by what he suffered. And so we've seen what the psalmist believes, what he feels, and finally and quickly here, notice what he does as a result of what he believes and feels. So what is the, what is the ensuing action that follows if these beliefs and these feelings are there? Right? What, what comes out from this conviction and these feelings about the word of God? A lot of things. Let me, let me just list them off for you for the sake of time. Uh, we see he sings about God's word. Verse 172, my, my tongue will sing of your word. He speaks of the word, verse 13, with my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. He studies it, verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. He stores it up, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He obeys it, verse 8, I will keep your statutes. He praises God for it, I will praise you with an upright heart. And then throughout the psalm, he's often praying for help. Verse 58 is an example. I entreat your favor. With all my heart, be gracious to me according to your promise. So there are seven things he does. There are seven things that he does with the word of God. There's a summary of what we are, are, can do with the word of God. He sings, he speaks, he studies, he stores, he obeys, he praises, and he prays. If you believe it's true and it's right, if you delight in it and you desire to live by it, then this is what will follow. Now, we could spend a lot of time in terms of seven points of application, but I just want you to see as we close that there are also, this, these are also seven points of implication. Meaning, if, if you're doing those things, they imply something about your mind and heart and faith. And if you're doing none of those things, then that too also implies something about your mind and your heart and your faith. Because if you're singing God's word, studying it, storing it up, obeying it, praising God for it, praying for help through it, then you're probably believing and feeling the right things. But if you're able to talk theology and discuss doctrine but you're never singing and speaking and studying and storing up God's word. You're never actively obeying it and praising God for it and praying for help to understand and apply it. Then you've got to at least ask the question, what is it that I actually believe about God's word? How do I really feel about God's word? There's, there's, there's the level of what I confess I believe and feel. But in reality, what is it that I believe that drives my actions? What is it that I feel that's driving my actions? But you see, the importance of how you think and feel about the word 
of God just rises in significance because I said earlier, how you think and feel about God's word is actually an indication of how you think and feel about God himself. Let's just take it a step further. All, all that the psalmist believed and felt about the word of God is all that we should think and feel about the word incarnate. You, you cannot separate the written word from the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it will always be true that our thinking and feeling about scripture never grows contrary to our thinking and feeling about Jesus Christ. The two always go together. They rise or stagnate together. The growing Christian rejoices in every love poem about the word incarnate and every love poem about the word of God. And so as we, as we wrap up this morning, and this is my last sermon in 2019, as far as I know, would you join with me in the year to come, in 2020, in striving to this end, that we would increasingly think and feel and act upon the word of God as the psalmist felt and believed and acted upon the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to think and feel rightly upon uh, and act rightly upon the word of God. We Pray that if our thinking isn't right, that you would get it right. If our feeling isn't right, that you would change us. And Lord, if we are thinking and feeling rightly, but we're simply failing to act upon what we believe and feel to, to, to know is true, that you would work in our lives, that we would be like the psalmist and submit our whole selves to your word. May the year 2020 be a year in our lives where we are wholly dedicated to your word, which means we are wholly dedicated to you. And we pray these things in and through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.